The fabulous 413 podcast is funded by Northeast Solar, offering solar options, energy security, and solutions for the local community. Learn more at northeast-solar.com. Welcome to the Fabulous 413. I'm Khalees Smith. And I'm Monty Belmonte. Later in the show, a preview of what's opening this week at the UMass Museum of Contemporary Art in Amherst with director Amanda Herman. And we'll unpack acronyms ASAP. Because <laughs> if you don't say it as ASAP, it doesn't count. It's an initialism. We'll learn about that. Coming we'll learn up. about that. With word nerd Emily Brewster, resident wordster from Merriam-Webster in Springfield. But first, an email. My name is Eliana Stanton, it reads, and I am a proud, long-standing member of SAG-AFTRA. I grew up right here in Western Mass, Amherst, and started acting at a young age through theater, which eventually led to film, TV, and commercial work as I grew older. When I'm not acting, I work as a full-time set medic on film, TV, and commercial sets through our sister union of IATSE. It was right here in Northampton that I got to work on my very first feature film, Edge of Darkness, back in 2008. As for what we are striking for, my beliefs are as follows. For what it's worth, I think AI is a great tool that can be used in many industries, but not a replacement for what humans have been specifically and specifically trained to do. On that note, when it comes to acting, what people look for the most is that human emotional connection. You know, the part that makes you feel a certain way when you connect to the character in the film or the show. Whether that connection makes you cry or jump in fear, I do not believe a computer can nor should replace that of which can proficiently emanate from a human emotion or action. Actors go through specialized and often methodical training to be able to make that emotional connection from their character to the audience viewing, and that's not something we will allow a computer to replace. We will not compromise when it comes to the protection of our members from AI. While AI is an important focus of our strike, we also seek an increase of wages to compensate for the rise of inflation. And more specifically, we're seeking a deal for residuals to be paid from streaming platforms to the actors that are making them tons of money. For that, I ask for your support. And please join us in solidarity when we rally right here in Western Mass at Pulaski Park in Northampton, September 21st from 4.30 to 5.30 p.m. Hey, that's tomorrow. And that was that an is e- tomorrow. email from Eliana Stanton from Amherst. According to a press release from SAG-AFTRA, the union, on July 13th of this year, SAG's national board voted unanimously to call a strike following the conclusion of the TV theatrical streaming negotiations with the Alliance of Motion Picture and Television Producers. Performers are asking for minimum earnings to keep up with inflation and compensation that reflects the value they bring to streaming platforms as new business models have eroded the residuals actors depend on to make ends meet between jobs. They also want protections put in place so that AI can't be used to add their voices or likenesses in new projects without their consent. And according to Benjamin Winthrop Shallop, senior business representative for the New England local of SAG-AFTRA, there are about 4,000 members of the Union in New England, living in all of the New England states, but the vast majority living here in Massachusetts. In Western Mass, there are about 200 members, one of which is Gary Galone. According to his IMDb bio, Gary Galone is the two-time SAG Best Ensemble Award winner for his roles in Spotlight and Coda, but you've also seen him on the big screen in Boston Strangler and Black Mass. On TV, he's been the head coach of the New York Giants in the Peacock Limited series The Best Man, The Final Chapters, appeared in The Americans, Body of Proof, and had a recurring role as Agent Elgort in Showtime's Brotherhood. Gary was born and raised in Massachusetts and attended UMass, where he studied marketing and communications and played baseball 
of all things. <laughs> Gary lives in central Massachusetts with his family, but we're giving him a pass today since it's an important cause. Yeah, maybe you don't live in the fabulous form. I am one town from the 413. Okay, we'll allow it. Brimfield have... is right next to me. <laughs> <laughs> we have some 978ers on the show tomorrow as well. Yes. Here, here's a brief clip of Gary in action on the Peacock comedy, The Best Man, The Final Chapter. Hollywood has come a-calling. They want to make unfinished business into a movie. Say what now? Get your popcorn ready. I couldn't tell that was actually you, but it was the clip that that's was on your me. IMDb page. No, so that's the only one there. So that's like, the intro for the show. Yeah, I was like, is that him in the background? I'm like, wait, they had me and Morris Chestnut in the yeah. locker room? That's no, no, pretty that's, cool. It looks like a cool I mean, show, though. No, no, and you I mean, we, plus you got to act with Morris Chestnut. And, uh, oh. he, yes, and he was scantily clad, I, I might add. Oh, yeah, he was, the trailer there. He was yeah. trying to make a comeback with the Giants, and it, it didn't go so good at the age of 48. <laughs> and I will say he is a physical specimen. Yeah, yes. And he gets hit pretty good, and... I go to the training room to basically uh, try and talk him uh, into uh, another role. Uh-huh. Uh, and then you see him next to me on the sidelines with a whistle dressing down a, a rookie. So, Are you a Giants fan? No. No. Because I hate no, the Giants God, no. so much being from New England and how they beat the Patriots in the Super Bowl twice. Like, I know we're it, supposed literally to— Literally the worst games of the season we put, both times. We single-handedly oh. put Peyton Manning in the Hall of Fame. Ugh. Seriously? Yeah, no. I'm, I'm a Patriots season ticket holder, actually. Oh, so. wow. Yeah, I felt a little dirty, but uh, yeah, that would have been do? a hard one. I heard Nicholson would not wear Celtics uh, paraphernalia He's while a... playing in the movie The Departed, another Massachusetts-based yeah. film. Again, a little more juice than, <laughs> you know. <laughs> so you, Gary Glowen, have to play a Giants coach, even though you uh, don't like them, and you are a member of SAG after us. So tell us how this strike has affected you and your career personally when when it was all announced. Oh God, I mean. Full disclosure, you know, my family owns a medium-sized business in Sturbridge. We employ about 65 people, and typically— Are they I, all actors? No. Pretending to be <laughs> no. in parts of— Oh, well, not, so my, you don't own Sturbridge Village. No. So we, do have a, we do have a theater actress <laughs> on staff. Um, yeah, former interpreter at the Village. But, no, I, I typically would take a pro-management um, position, um, you know, because of, because of my business background. And we would get strike authorization votes in the past— you know, uh, taking the temperature of the union, you know, do you guys really want to do this? Yeah. And it would be 65, 35, 70, 30. And I was always in the minority, like, you know, what do we got to complain about? Uh-huh. This time, you said unanimous. To, to be factual, it was actually 97.8%, which uh-huh. is unbelievable. And I was in the 97.8. Okay. So you weren't business side of this. No, one. no, because I've been, I've been, uh, I've been directly uh, impacted. I I agree with uh, with what Eliana said. And by the way, speaking of acronyms, uh, her union is IATSE. 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 Yeah, you, 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 I know. Yeah. I used to have that board game. <laughs> yeah. Oh no, that's Yahtzee. I <laughs> yeah, there's no way. Yeah, right. Oh my goodness. But um, <laughs> and she touched on on the big two, and you know, I think it depends on on um, two thirds of, of actors are actually background actors. I think for for background actors, uh, the AI thing is is huge, and I have a lot of friends that that try to grind out their 26900 a year so they can get the uh, the Plan 2 medical benefits. That's the requirement of what you must make per year to stay on the benefits, right? To stay on, on yep. Tier 2, which is $500 a quarter yep. for me and my wife, $2,000 a year. Now, I, got, I didn't make it in 22 for the mm-hmm. first time in many, many, many years, mm-hmm. despite being busier than ever, and we'll get to the, the reason why on the streaming side, but... Back to the B, the background thing. Um, you know, these folks will grind out 80, 90, 100 days. They, you had uh, the reboot of uh, 
Dexter out here. Yes. Um, Paul Giamatti, uh, who we just had at OSV for a Lifetime Achievement Award. He's amazing. Uh, Paul Giamatti did the holdovers. At Deerfield Academy. Yeah. Looks like an excellent film. Right. So there are extras who might have did 15, 18 days, you know, at 189 bucks, usually with smoke pay and meal penalties. And, you know, it's $300 a day. What is smoke pay? Smoke pay is if they put smoke in the room. Okay. You know, you uh, get, yeah. Nice. You don't, yeah. If you are an actor who gets to smoke on <laughs> yeah. film, it's, they pay you more. And then I'm like, I'm signing up. It's, it's even not real smoke, and they still pay you. Um, oh, yeah. yeah just well. in case. Just in case yeah. of something. Yeah, Wet right. pay. I don't uh, even want to know what that is. Yeah, that's... <laughs> I uh, I got yelled at by Scorsese once uh, in Shutter Island because I couldn't we couldn't hear him say uh, action, and I'm I'm talking to Mark Ruffalo through these these bars you know because I'm a gate guard they want to go explore the island and and finally the guy comes running up with the clipboard action you know and all of a sudden you hear cat 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 now you don't see Scorsese because he sits in a little bubble in a tent you know he's not like uh, you know say uh, you know. Spielberg, who's right there, yeah, you know, like on the sidelines, and he comes running into the uh, the fake rain with an umbrella, and he is cartoon characterish small. He's yeah. five two, five three, and he's like, well, I don't want to swear, but yes, please don't. God darn it, God darn it. <laughs> he's like, Mark, for God's sakes, you know, and he's yelling at Mark, and then he goes, and Gary, you gotta, right? and he turns and leaves. Now it's not raining anymore because they shut the things off, right? But he's still holding the umbrella over his head, <laughs> and. And Ruffalo looks at me and he says, Gary, dude, that's totally my fault. I, I start the scene. I said, Mark, I'm actually giddy that I can say I've been directed by <laughs> Martin Scorsese. There you even go. though he didn't say anything. But anyways. Is that, that wet pay, though? That was wet pay. Okay. Extremely yeah. wet. Back to the background. <laughs> so in the AI world, instead of getting those 12 days on Dexter, they're going to say, uh, all right, Monty, show up in your coach's outfit, your, your, your uh, date night outfit, and your, you know, your uh, whatever casual stuff and we're going to film you and pay you for a day in those three different outfits and now you're in seven eight nine scenes that's going to affect background two-thirds of which the 150,000 actors are pretty much predominantly background actors and stand-ins and photo doubles if that happens that's going to be devastating so, so let me get this straight. You'd come in three outfits. They'd film a little bit of you and just use you regenerating yeah, it in as many yeah, scenes copy and as they need to. As, opposed, as they need that to. Is, that is the threat. You know, there are good uses of AI. If you saw the movie Maverick, you know, a lot of people don't realize Val Kilmer can't speak. Right. He doesn't have a, a voice box. So they did a mashup of his voice from different movies. And when he hits the little button on his neck to have that little scene with, with Cruz, he's really not speaking. But Val Kilmer made seven figures Plus, you right. know, the, the, the $189 a day background actors, you know, aren't going to. So I, in, in my world where I pursue predominantly uh, speaking parts, Eliana's uh, right. They're not going to replace. I mean, Scarlett Johansson has nothing to worry about. Right. You know, it, it, in my world, the, the reason I didn't make um, my number in 22, and I'll give you a, a prime example. Coda, right? Uh, Won the Oscar for Best Picture. 2019. Massachusetts. Right. Gloucester, Mass. If you haven't seen it, see it. It's, it's, it's one incredible. of my favorite movies of all time. But, you know, you're over the moon to be cast in it. You're, you're on set with Marley Matlin and, and Troy Kotzer, who won Best Supporting Actor, and Sean Heater, who was the director. You've got all these interpreters, and it's moving like a finely oiled machine. One of the most, probably the most um, uh, satisfying, gratifying experiences of my life goes to Sundance. 
Apple TV sets a Sundance record, pays $25 million for the rights to Coda. We celebrate that. That's got to be a good thing, right? $25 million? Ching, ching, right? Wins Best Picture, as you pointed out. Two years later, my residuals are barely cracking $1,000 on that. If that was a studio film like Black Mass, like The Departed, like The Town, or even like The Law and Order, would have made multiple times that amount, and I would have made you know, um, my money, uh, you know, certainly you have to work and I do audiobook narration, which can, can, you know, you can chip away at it that way. But 22 should have been an amazing year for me in residuals and follow it up with, uh, with, you mentioned, um, uh, Boston Strangler that, that came out on Hulu in March. I haven't seen a nickel other than getting paid to do it. And, you know, if a movie does $200 million at the box office, everybody knows it did $200 million at the box office. But we, what they won't, the streaming companies won't tell us how many times it's been streamed. So it makes yeah. it what it makes at the box office. You make what you're getting paid for to go and act. And we're speaking with Gary yeah. Galone, who's an actor from Sturbridge, part of the SAG after strike. There's a local rally happening on Thursday, tomorrow in Northampton. You, it, the box office residuals you would get normally, but when it moves over to streaming, they've worked out some other deal that is so low that you don't see close to what you would hope, maybe from a previous era of video rentals or video purchases or that correct, kind of thing. Yeah. Correct. Mm-hmm. And I guess shame, shame on us for, for not seeing it coming. But when they last negotiated this, uh, you little streaming guys, yeah, well, okay, you know, it'll be like uh, airplane sale or whatever. <laughs> we, we, had, we had no idea. And... Um, yeah, it's 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 real, and you know. Then I do one for Hulu, one for Paramount, and one for Stars. Uh, 50, 50, 50 cents project, uh, Power Book Three, Raising Canaan. I have a, a a wonderful scene with Tony Danza. He's an Italian mobster. I'm a federal agent. We, we're wrangling them. That's coming out this year. But again, that's going to be on Stars. And uh, now I know that you know I better get back in the booth and start narrating books because I'm not, I'm not going to be making my number on. Uh, on residuals, at least not in the streaming world. Was that happening with your Peacock series too? Since Peacock is NBC's streaming platform. Yeah, and yeah. Very, the best man, the final chapter is minimal, minimal. Mm-hmm. And that's, and again, I don't know how many people, I mean, my phone blew up and, and continues to blow up every time someone discovers Coda or whatever, but the residuals aren't blowing up. And, and you know, one of the things we're, we're negotiating for is, is for them to share that revenue. Now, that's not going to happen. You know, they, they, the subscription base is just a constant churn. How many times people pay the extra fee to download a movie? We, we want a piece of that. I don't think they'll acquiesce there. But what we have to get is just a bigger, a bigger number, you know. Gary Galone is an actor from Sturbridge who's been in movies like Coda and in Boston Strangler and Spotlight. We're going to talk more about the SAG after strike, how it's affecting actors in Western Mass and about the rally happening in Northampton tomorrow. You're listening to The Fabulous 413 on NEPM. Welcome back to The Fabulous 413. I'm Monty Belmonte. And I'm Cleese Smith. We are here in the studio with Gary Galone, who's an actor from Sturbridge, who's been in CODA and a bunch of other movies that you've seen. And as part of the SAG after a strike, there is a rally happening in Northampton tomorrow. We should fully disclose that it just so happens that Gary is our director, Tony Dunn's cousin. But we did not know this 
while we were organizing this conversation until I we informed Tony. He missed who, the last Christmas Eve party, was, or I would have known. <laughs> who was coming into the show, and he's like, hey, that's my cousin. Um, the, some of the specific demands that SAG-AFTRA is asking for, uh, 11%, 4%, and 4% over three years in regards to the uh, the streaming numbers, uh, uh, keeping pace with inflation. The Alliance of Motion Picture and Television Producers is offering 5%, 4%, and 3.5%, which they're claiming is historic by, by any measure. You who have admitted to siding uh, not usually with labor, but with more of the, the management end of things, what do you... T- take away from what the Alliance of Motion Picture and Television Producers is offering at that percentage rate? I'll take you at your word that that's where we're at because um, I know those those are moving targets daily. Um, doesn't doesn't sound like a ton. Uh, certainly wouldn't wouldn't have moved the needle for me. Um, there is a third thing that, that doesn't get talked about a lot, but um, you ask my wife and she'll tell you it's the number one thing is the uh, the auditions now are self-tapes. Uh-huh. Now, for years, I would dream about, oh, this, well, why can't I just send a tape to L.A. or to New York instead of fighting three hours of traffic, which I did probably three times a month for 12 years mm-hmm. to New York City. And um, at first blush, it's great. You know, now I can do the scene on my own. But the demands for the right lighting, the right sound, you need someone to read with you. You need someone to, to record you. That someone is typically my wife, who, who is the last thing from an actress and doesn't <laughs> want to be. And in the end, they, you know, let, let's just say Del Monte and Galone were both going up for cop roles in Law and Order. It'd be like, uh, all right, Del Monte's at 355. It's Belmonte. Belmonte, sorry. Gary <laughs> Stallone. Oh, uh, you know, I should have put my glasses on. I'm sorry, brother. No worries. It's okay. It's enough. But they would have pushed us through. <laughs> boom, boom, boom. Get in. Do your scene. And get out because we got to see 80 people for that role, and and narrow it down to five or ten. Now they're saying, okay, you know, your your character actually has three scenes and ten pages. We want you to do all the scenes, and you don't have to be off book, you know, memorize it, but you really do because Belmonte's going to know it. Yes, I will, and <laughs> and I, I I better keep up with him. So those have become so cumbersome, and you know, sometimes the turnaround is 24, 48 hours. And you don't get any intimacy. You don't get any feedback. You know, when you're with a, in a casting director room, the you know, casting director in in, uh, in Boston, uh, CP Casting, where where the, the the person putting you on tape is really a good reader and would give you some good feedback, you don't get that. So you're, you're kind of you're shooting in the dark as to did I get this right? Did I did I get the right intonation and the right? So that that's being abused by producers. Casting directors in New York City are closing their offices. Physically closing these spaces that they're spending hundreds of thousands of dollars a year on, a year on, and, and yet you know um, they're they're still getting paid to cast movies, and all they're doing is taking our files from WeTransfer or Dropbox, renaming them and pushing them off. So they're not even left out of the equation; they're still part of the equation. I guess you could say there's an you know maybe in the modern era, casting directors are not as essential as they were at one time. Well, I mean, like they're still essential, but there's some sort of like sterilization to the process it seems like it, it is it is and i i mean i'll give you when when uh boston strangler came out on march 17th my agent got me i bet 20 tape 20 auditions in about a four-week period and and a lot of them were doomed because they the strike was looming so didn't really have a chance a couple of them i might still be in the running for but i thought my wife was going to leave me I have to get daughters and other people to 
Because who's going to film you doing this stuff? I mean, going to the and you know, we're grandparents now, so we, we have a, a nursery in our house that has to be completely like upended because you have to have a you know a, a blank neutral wall and right. you know well lit. Mm-hmm. So all that little you know, my wife was a Montessori teacher, so all of her teaching stuff was on that wall. Get that off the wall. Get you know, it's uh, it's. I, you know, the, in The Best Man, this was weird. You know, in The Best Man, the final chapters, I did a self-tape from my parents' place in Florida. Great. I was in Florida. Could no way have got done the audition in person. I get a callback. It's a Zoom callback with a legend in casting named Ross Meyerson. And he's literally yelling at me because I'm, I'm, I'm not quite getting a line, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it, it, it's, it's the Morris Chestnut line. Mm-hmm. I have another idea in mind for you. Right? I have another idea. What's the key word in that, Gary? I go, uh, idea? No, you know. And I mean, if we were in the same room, I probably would have picked up on it. And, and you know, he's like, it's another. You want him to coach with you, you know. So, <laughs> you know, it, it was a little, a little daunting to be yelled at, you know, on a, on a Zoom callback, you know. But uh, I never actually met a, a casting director in person and got that gig. So it's a brave new world. But actors if the it should be and that's the thing that they're fighting for if it's going to be more than a page or a scene you got to get paid right you you want you want me to spend hours prepping this upending the lives of you know at least one other person give me give me 50 bucks a t- an audition or you know whatever not to bring back the the ai issue but are you worried that with your reels that you're sending off for auditions and things that that property becomes that becomes their property and that they'll use likenesses of of like your lines or like possible voiceover for their productions without including you in it I'm not, but now that you say it like that, <laughs> sorry, I'm a sci-fi girl. I think I, about things in that think, manner, I and I, I apologize I for it. Gary Galone. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm more worried on the AI front as it affects me personally uh, on the audiobook narration front. I'm mm. real worried about that. Um, there are some really slick, and again, I mean, I, I have a naval fiction series by David Poyer where I have you know there's five protagonists in each book and six people swirling around them. I have like 30 voices I have to do. Mm. I, you know, I find it hard to believe that AI is going to be able to do that. But if it's straight, you know, biography, you know, nonfiction, we're going to start losing a lot of audiobook work to the bots, I'm afraid. There is a rally in support of the SAG-AFTRA strike in Northampton tomorrow at Pulaski Park between 4.30 and 5.30. There are about 200 Western Mass SAG members. There are thousands in New England and uh, folks who are acting. And can, can I get a little street cred, though, on Northampton? Yeah. I, as a toddler, I did live in Florence okay. a million years ago when my dad worked for Pro Brush in North. In North All right. So do you want to okay. be identified as Gary Galone from Sturbridge or Florence? I'll allow. Florence. All right. All right. Florence, yeah. Gary Galone from Florence. <laughs> Thank you so much for giving us your perspective on this Thanks, strike. And we'll Calice. see what happens tomorrow. Thank you. Oh, sure, sure. Up next, ta-ta for now. Regardless of your FOMO, we get into acronyms with our resident wordster, Emily Brewster of Merriam-Webster. You're listening to The Fabulous 413 on NEPM. Emily Brewster, resident wordster from Merriam-Webster, our dictionary in Springfield. I think we should do this quiz style. We're going to talk about acronyms, so maybe (laughs) you should... Tell us the acronym, and then Kalise and I have to try to guess what it is. 
But first of all, I'm sure most people know what an acronym is, but if people don't, what's an acronym? An acronym is an abbreviation that is made of the first letter or letters of a series of words. My favorite one and, that I go to is always SCUBA. It doesn't blow right. most people's minds, but it blows enough people's minds that they forget that it is an acronym, self-contained underwater breathing apparatus. Yeah. As opposed to the obvious choice of YMCA. But you don't say YMCA, you read the letters. So is that different than an acronym? Or is an acronym a word, it becomes its own word, like scuba diving wow. is now, it doesn't have little dots next to it like YMCA does. The word acronym refers to both kinds, but then there is a subset that some people say should not qualify at all, that it is that initialism, as it's called, mm. is distinct from an acronym. But the word acronym is used broadly to mean both. But an initialism is technically a word that is, um, you, it's an abbreviation that is pronounced by saying the names of the letters that make it up, like YMCA. It's fun to stay Or CISA. Or CISA, yeah. CISA is a good example. So is DIY. Well, you well, can't no, really say D. CISA, though. <laughs> CISA is an acronym, a pure one, because we don't say C-I-S-A. We say CISA. It became a word like scuba, right? So that is not Yeah, an that's why I'm saying that yeah. CISA is an acronym. And not right. an, an initialism. Yes. yes. YMCA CISA is, is an, an initialism. acronym and not an initialism, if you make that distinction. Yes. 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 All Squares are rectangles, but not all rectangles are squares. Exactly. <laughs> How about radar? Do you know what, uh, what radar? Why uh, radar? Sometimes I can tell what's going to happen before it happens. Radar is also an acronym. No you know cheating. What it, what it means? No Googling. From? No Googling. <laughs> radio something or other. And uh, radio antenna detection something something. Radio detection and ranging. Ah. So you two are really good. You got the radio and the detection between the two of you. <laughs> I mean, who even thinks about the and ranging thing, you know? Fair Except enough. for Strider from Lord of the Rings. I think a servant of the enemy would look fairer. Feel fouler. But radar has become, just like scuba, the fact that it is acronymic in origin is, is kind of lost now in the word's use. But with other words, we really do retain an understanding of the meaning of its components, right? Like, how about ASAP? As soon as, soon as, as possible. possible. Yes. Now, ASAP can be, as I, if I say it as ASAP, it's an initialism. But if you say ASAP, then, you know, magic, it's, it's an acronym now. <laughs> and, if, and if you say it like this, it's ASMR ASAP. <laughs> <laughs> you have to crinkle something. Is there something you could crinkle while you say oh, it? No. <laughs> oh, no. ASAP. My wife hates ASMR. She hates whispering. And now all of you <laughs> listeners have been subjected to it. But that's an, that is an initialism in and of itself, isn't it? Yeah, it a is. ASMR. What does that one stand for again? Oh, I have to look it up. It's audio stimulation. Um, ah, darn it. A silent murmuring rummaging. No, it's not. Autonomous no. sensory meridian response. Forget yeah. it. I know, right? Forget that one. That one, that one really, the, the fact that it has become an initialism, a.k.a. an acronym, is, um, is, is I, I don't think it would be successful without that, because who is going to remember autonomous sensory meridian response? ASMR makes it much more attainable as a term to throw into one's vocabulary or even into one's mental um, understanding of the world. You'd have to remember what meridians are. Right. Right? I'm anti-meridian. I'm, I'm more like post-meridian. 
You sure aren't. And somebody uh, in the NEPM news department is going to be really upset about what I did to their script for the demonstrative ASMR. Oh, no. Yeah. I'll have to see if I can iron that out. What are some more acronyms or initialisms? Emily Brewster, resident wordster from our dictionary in Springfield, Massachusetts. Well, we are really in a heyday of both. Right. If you think about how frequently we encounter um, acronyms nowadays, right? TLDR, BRB, LOL. Let's explain those uh, ones. Too long, didn't read. Be right yep. back. And not lots of love, but it's so funny how many people think LOL meant lots of love, including me at the very beginning of people using that in like texting. Oh, really? Yeah. yeah. Like, oh, your, uh, your aunt has cancer. LOL. What do you mean? What are you laughing at my aunt with cancer for? Oh, I thought it meant lots of I thought it meant lots of love. Yeah, there are there are numerous stories of that of that happening. Right. It means lot it means laugh out loud. Yeah. Right. Not yeah. laughing at your right. aunt with cancer. I think another one of those that gets misinterpreted is SMH. Shaking oh, my head. Yeah. What what how does it get confused? Like what do people confuse it with? So much hate. Oh. oh. So which one do you think it it is? Well, now I'd shake my head, but initially I was like, so because you'd use it under kind of similar circumstances. Yeah. Wow. So the person writing it would be expressing like how it would be used as an expression of, of, of hatred? Yeah. Or would it be like identifying? Dislike. More of hatred? dislike. Yeah. Interesting. These acronyms that we now encounter so frequently are really open to multiple interpretations, the ways that words are not. Words also are open, of course, to multiple interpretations. But acronyms can be very, very confusing for people if they don't know. And how do you know? Right? You have to like ask somebody or Google it or look it up in your dictionary because we do enter many of them. But I think it's a, it's, it's just such a, a fascinating shift for the language to be taking. It's not new at all, though. One of the most, it is, it is truly the most successful word in the English language. If you want to measure success by its widespread use, the most successful word in the English language is undeniably, undoubtedly, undubitably, uh, do you know? Is it okay? It is okay, yes. yes. <laughs> I thought it was going to okay. be the F word, and I was hoping it was going to be the F word. That is not an acronym, even though most people think it is. Right, it is not an acronym. <laughs> I would That's so right. love to talk about that, but you can see the history of swear words still on Netflix featuring uh, the former Merriam-Webster editor that we mentioned uh, many times on this show, Corey Stamper. That's right. Yeah. Yes. Yep. But okay is an acronym. In the 19th century, people were, just as they do today, making up playful acronyms all the time. People were, it was just like a, a thing that people did. They were playing with their language in a way that really reminds me of how we play with our language now. And OK was used. And the earliest known example of OK, where it's clear what it means, is in a newspaper article. And this journalist writes OK and then glosses it as all correct. O L L K O R R E C T. So, <laughs> okay. Yeah. Okay is an acronym for a misspelling, an intentional, playful misspelling of the phrase all correct. I'm going to just start going around <laughs> saying AC when I mean okay, because that's the correct spelling. Yeah. All correct. I mean, AC. Right. In some ways, that's taking all the fun out of it. Yeah. But, you know, now, okay, okay is a word that if some person on, you know, living far away from any 
country where English is, you know, a common spoken language, okay is the word that people are likely to know anyway. If they know no other English words, they might know Coke also, right? But <laughs> like, okay, it's, it's just been incredibly successful in the English language as far as an export of the language goes. I'm glad <laughs> that the uh, unsuccessful soda from the 1990s, okay soda, beats out Coke when it comes to familiarity with English words. Do you remember OK Soda? This is a television chain letter promoting OK Soda. Tunby of Little Rock, Arkansas declined a can of OK, then stepped onto an elevator that got stuck between floors for six hours. Happily, the other people in it, mostly third graders, knew an impressive range of knock-knock jokes and the time seemed to pass quickly. While this is only a coincidence, Tom now drinks several cans of OK each day and shares our belief that things are going to be OK. Am I the only one? Wow. Yes. It was like. Did you dream that? No. It was like. It was, no. It was like this is the Gen X <laughs> soda. Forget yeah. about Coke and New Coke. Okay, so and it lasted for like. I, I've learned half that, an that hour. when talking about anything involving sugar and Monty's teens, you should probably believe him. He yeah. ate it. Pink hearts, orange stars, <laughs> yellow moons, green clovers, blue diamonds, purple horseshoes, and red balloons. Enough said. It is genuinely a miracle he doesn't have like severe diabetes yeah. at this point in his like life. Like the rest of my family. This so this is the most popular one. Okay. It has nothing to do with the okay corral or anything like that. There's a lot of mythology around okay. It really is yep. just this playful use of language for all correct spelled incorrectly. Yeah. When's the first time we see it with the AY at the end? Oh, you know, that's a good question. Yeah, because then not, is that still an acronym at that point? It's not an initialism or no, an acronym, I mean, really. It's, it's just its, its really own an extension thing. Of, right. of the abbreviation. It's a way of making it more formal. I don't have that information, I'm afraid. Sorry. Sorry. We don't have that. <laughs> the dictionary doesn't know everything. I, okay, I can find this out for you, but I don't have it at the tip oh, of my okay, fingers. Well. I could find out a date for you. What I do know is that there is a fascinating document that gives us insight into when of the many texting abbreviations that we use were first used. There's a book uh, published by a linguist named Gretchen McCullough called Because Internet. Her book is fantastic. She has this one section of the book where she talks about these you know, slangy internet abbreviations. Um, excuse my birds. I guess they want to join me. <laughs> the birds are like, okay. Also, like we know some. There is also a meme with Jamie Lee Curtis from some award ceremony, and it's okay with like a lot of Ys, three Ys at the end, okay, A, Y, Y, Y. I don't know why or where this <laughs> came up. I just know that um, my children say this anytime anyone says okay, and they think of Jamie Lee Curtis, and it has something to do with award ceremonies, and it's kind of awesome, because it's Jamie Lee Curtis. Oh, she looks like an old lady. Okay, it's all good. There was a document that computer programmers would use in the late 1970s to chronicle their own jargon because they were writing to each other using this jargon. They either thought that it was very interesting to track it or some of them really actually needed the help and probably it was a combination of the two of them. So they called this document the jargon file and in 1983, it was published as a print book called The Hacker's Dictionary. Yes. But the, original, the original jargon file was an electronic index and as it got revised, the older versions would get overwritten. And so then they would lose this record of when these new jargon elements were coming into use. Mm. But in 2018, they found an archive of backup tapes going back to 1976. And the oldest of the backup text was a, was a plain text file from August 12th, 
1976. And that document has none of the abbreviations that we think of, like absolutely none of them. But then in 1977, they start appearing, including uh, BTW, FYI, (laughs) and C-U-L for see you later, B-C-N-U for B-C-N-U. But I, I think that is so fascinating that we know that in 1976, they were not using them. And in 1977, we have BTW and FYI. Those go back farther than I would have imagined. Mm-hmm. Oh, see, I felt like FYI was probably older than that. I wouldn't have been surprised to find out that FYI was being used in you know, newspaper journalism rooms or whatever, you know. The passive aggressive centers. office notes for like years <laughs> and years. It's always been passive aggressive <laughs> office mates. So I should have known better. Yeah. Yeah. How did they, how, how did they point out um, one another's ignorance before we had FYI? Right. I don't know. Mostly by throwing sand in each other's faces in the parking lots. I have no documented evidence of that, Khalees. Neither do I. It shows that I haven't worked in very many offices. You know, I remember learning in like the early internet days, I had a friend sign off an email with TTFN. And Ta-ta for now. That one I yes, know from Ta-ta Winnie the Pooh. Now. They used the acronym? <laughs> yeah, TTFN, Ta-ta for now. Tigger said it all the time. Yep. Yeah. He did. Oh. Yeah. Wow. See, I learned it, it sitting in front of a computer, getting an, an email and not understanding what it what it meant at all. Yeah. You know, the, <laughs> the wonderful thing about Tiggers is Tiggers are wonderful things. Their tops yeah. are made of rubber. Their bottoms are made out of springs. They're bouncy, 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 fun, 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 fun. Most wonderful thing about Tiggers is that he's the only one because, frankly, the rest of us could not handle it if there was more. I know. It's too much. <laughs> I'm the only one. Yeah. Well. Ta-ta for now. (laughs) But next week, Emily Brewster, we'll have you on on a special day because our dictionary in Springfield is going to unveil tons of new words into the dictionary and into the universe. Super exciting. Yep. Dictionary is getting bigger. Trying to get back to like first and second edition size. I see you. (laughs) We got to keep Emily Brewster employed. Just keep making up words so she has something to do. I mean, like, don't we all just do that anyway? Yeah. Coming up, a preview of what's happening this fall at the UMass Museum of Contemporary Art in Amherst with Interim Director Amanda Herman. You're listening to The Fabulous 413 on NEPM. Welcome back to The Fabulous 413. I'm Monty Belmonte. And I'm Glee Smith. And it should be the last day of summer, but somehow autumn is waiting until the weekend. I don't really get it. But the UMass Museum of Contemporary Art is opening three exhibits at once. The first of which features the work of renowned Palestinian Israeli artist, filmmaker, and activist Raida Adon. Her 33-minute film Strangeness was at Brandeis last year and offers a non-narrative depiction of a refugee experience and speaks to the struggle of navigating between multiple often contentious identities. It'll be shown along with Artists Born Elsewhere, an exhibition of art from the UMass Permanent Collection by artists not born in the U.S. And lastly, an exhibit that features local artists this month with West Hampton-based Susan Yard Harris. And joining us to talk about what's going on this fall, which is beginning, it's it's heartbreaking for Khalees and I that that summer is ending this week (laughs) and fall is beginning. But there's stuff to look forward to in the fall. We love fall in New England. It just means... Death and destruction in winter is coming. Um, but joining us is the interim director of the UMass Museum of Contemporary Art, Amanda Herman. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to be here. Um, this museum is a gem, and I should start out by saying it's free mm-hmm. all, all the time in 
virtually everything it does or in everything that it does? Yes, absolutely free. All our public programs, um, all the exhibitions, and we're open um, during the academic year. And we're so excited for people to find out about us. I agree. It's a gem. It's not as well known as maybe some of the other area museums. But every semester, we offer a different selection of really great shows, artists from all over the place, um, international, national, and we love supporting our local artists. Um, and we have a beautiful collection, a permanent collection that we hold in the public trust, and we bring those incredible works out for folks to see as much as possible. Now, not to skip straight to that part of it, but I, I feel like out of the, the three, that's the one that immediately caught my attention. You have a series. It's not just this particular exhibit, but a series where you uh, conjoin things in your collection with local artists and just like weave a thread through art between their two styles. And I think that's really, really cool. How did that idea come about? Yeah, I think that was the brainchild of the former director, Loretta Yarlow. Um, And she was looking for a way to uh, pull out these incredible works from the collection as well as highlight local artists. Um, And it is a great way. We have um, a great series of past exhibitions where local artists have done just this. They go through the permanent collection. They try and find works that resonate with their own, either in process or in in theme. Um, and then they get to, to mount a show, um, show their current work, and then be in dialogue with these incredible artists that um, whose works uh, are in our collection. So the, the one that's on display and will open tomorrow night um, is actually a dialogue between just two artists, Susan Yard Harris, who's the local artist Monty mentioned, and then Etta Renouf. Um, and her, um, Etta Renouf is a really incredible artist whose etchings and lithographs are directly in response to Susan Yard Harris's incredible drawings that are made with just uh, paper and pen. They're very intricate, and they look like um, kind of like the water from above or different textiles. And they really invite you to come up close and watch and look and kind of imagine what it was like for her as an artist to create these um, very intricate, elaborate artworks. And we mentioned that Susan Yard Harris is from West Hampton. Where is Etta Renouf from? Um, Etta Renouf uh, was born in Austria, but I think now lives in New York City. Mm-hmm. So she, um, even though not technically part of our artist born elsewhere, um, it does connect to that, um, to that idea. Talk about that idea. It seems like there's a a distinct focus on the art of refugees and people who have experienced refugee status, uh, either with the film that you'll be showing, the 33-minute-long Rada Adan film that I saw the trailer for and is stunningly gorgeous, um, as well as some of the other exhibits. Why was uh, refugees a focus of what the UMass Museum of Contemporary Art wanted to do? Well, we really started with... um with learning about the art of Rita Dawn in this film in particular, and it just resonated so much with myself and with Loretta Yarlow at the time as we were planning this semester's exhibitions. Uh, it speaks so directly to what we're dealing with um, all across the world and what we're, we're going to be dealing with as um, kind of the forced migrations that um, happen due to the climate crisis we're facing, um, not to mention the many, many wars and, um, and issues that are happening um, unfortunately, in too many places. I was really struck when I saw the film, um, perhaps like you, Monty. It's very beautiful, but it's also kind of haunting, and it refers back to specific historical moments in time, but it also weaves in um, elements of fantasy. Um, Raida Dawn pulls from her her personal experience of, of growing up in Israel as a, um, a, a woman who has a Muslim mother, a Jewish father, and Christian relatives. So I think she speaks 
to that experience and what that was like trying to bridge um, those differences and, and live in such a contentious um, land. And then she brings those ideas through into her film um, to, I think, create um, a really amazing entryway into what it may feel like or the impact of, of being forced to leave and to also to be to feel out of place, which I feel like is, is so important for us to build empathy around that idea and um, and start to consider um, how we're going to deal with this as a as a society as as it becomes um, more and more relevant in our in our everyday. And even as a Commonwealth, as the governor of Massachusetts has declared a refugee crisis in this state, this is a state university, UMass Amherst, and it's the Museum of Contemporary Art, where the fall exhibit will open up tomorrow. We're speaking with the interim director, Amanda Herman. <laughs> so I not connected to your exhibits. Well, sort of connected to your exhibits. Later on in the semester, you're going to have your grad students present work that they think your collection should buy in a presentation called Vote for Art, which I think is fascinating yeah. and cool <laughs> that the public's Super invited cool. to kind of participate. Like, again, like, like why? I mean, like, I understand, like, the purpose of it, you know, teaching curation, but, like, what a cool idea. <laughs> yes, I agree. And it's an idea that a number of um, schools around the country um, have done, and we started it two years ago. We were inspired by um, both the Mead uh, at, at Amherst College. They run a similar program. It's The idea is a student-led acquisition program. Um, and for us, it really was a chance to expand our collection to include more artists of color and more women. And we wanted to invite students in to be a part of that process. And like you said, they learn all about kind of collecting and um, the art market, and they, they learn a lot about specific artists and what they may bring to our university if we were to um, kind of learn from the artwork that we would collect. And so we, uh, it's, a, it's a course, that it's a four-credit course through art history. It's co-taught by myself, Loretta Yallo, the former director, and our collections manager, Jenny Lind. And the students spend um, a number of sessions uh, learning about particular artists. We go to Boston for a great field trip. And then, as you mentioned, it kind of culminates in this public event where the students present the artworks that they think we should purchase. And then those in attendance get to weigh in and vote. And whoever wins the popular vote is the artwork that we buy. And um, we've done this twice, and we've um, collected just incredible works. And so I'm really excited for this next round. And definitely invite the public to, to come and join in. And it's great to see the stu students and to also learn about these incredible artists that we can um, add to our collection. When, marking it on my calendar. Yeah, when is that, that so, particular uh, open to the public vote? <laughs> yeah, so that event is on Tuesday, November 14th from 5 to 6 p.m. in the lobby of the Bromery Center. Um, and it would be a great chance also to view the exhibitions if you hadn't already. Um, and I definitely want to, um, of course, invite everybody to come tomorrow night to the opening to see the exhibitions, but also to consider um, we have a great event coming up on the 30th in collaboration with the Emily Dickinson Museum. Uh, and we were always looking for ways to bring in different types of artwork. So we're working with uh, with them as part of their Tell It Slant Poetry Festival. And they're bringing in two incredible poets to read about their experiences um, that connect to the themes um, that Raida Dawn touches on in her film. Um, so that's that's Saturday, September 30th in the afternoon. 
um, and again, free and open to everybody. And we're going to be talking more about the Tell It Slant Festival and talking with the Emily Dickinson Museum on Monday's show, so I'm sure that that will come up again. And uh, we love talking about art, and we love talking about museums. We'll be at another contemporary art museum on Friday for Fresh Grass. But love it. If people uh, at the at Mass Mocha in North Adams, but uh, if tell us uh, again what is going to happen tomorrow night for this opening of the fall season of the UMass Museum of Contemporary Art. Amanda Herman, interim director. So tomorrow night really is just a celebration and a welcoming for uh, people who, students, you know, community members, family members, um, hopefully people who have never been to the museum before. It's an invitation to come um, to see this incredible film, um, to see the hard work that our staff has has done to kind of transform the gallery into this um, very special viewing uh, viewing scene for, for this film, um, and then to see that artist born elsewhere and Susan Yard Harris. There'll be some um, delicious food available in the lobby and some great music. Uh, we have a student who worked through the summer and created a great playlist, kind of inspired Ooh. by Raida Don's um, <laughs> film and, and, and her, um, her connection to Israel and the Middle East. So I think um, it should be a great night. I'll be welcoming folks at 5.30 and kind of giving a little um, context to the exhibitions. And then um, and then it really is just a chance to go see that film and to, to look closely at the amazing artworks. And it's free and it's open to the public. It is tomorrow evening at the UMass Museum of Contemporary Art. Rada Don's 33-minute film, Strangeness, which was stunning even the, the short trailer that I watched. I went down a Rada Don rabbit hole of some of the other trailers <laughs> that she had on there. Good reference since she, yes. uh, she has a... An Alice in Wonderland kind of theme running through it. Oh, definitely. Yeah. It feels very <laughs> David Lynchy, which is right up my alley. <laughs> Amanda Herman, the interim director of the UMass Museum of Contemporary Art. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. Thursday on the Fabulous 413, even though it's almost fall and cold is around the corner, we're getting on the water. It's the Paper City Regatta this weekend, so we're going out on the Connecticut River with Holyoke Mayor Joshua Garcia, Andrew Fisk from American Rivers, and the folks of Holyoke Rose, to see how the oars paddle. Plus, we hear about sustainable meat raising from Jennifer Kaur and Olivier Flagolet of Hetty Bell Farm in Wendell. My French is terrible. <laughs> and our weekly chat with Representative Jim McGovern. Got a question for the congressman? You can email thefab413 at nepm.org. Special thanks to Spouse Happy Valley Guitar Orchestra, David Bowie, St. Vincent, Billy Bragg, The Beatles, and The Village People. And this is music from Rada Adon's film. Our director is Tony Does Not Want to Go Back in Time, done. Our engineers are Betsy, vibes-based board-opping Langto, Phil, new Vital, Lacerda fan, Bishop, Kara, It's a Traffic Jam, Foster, Bart, This is the Fun Part Rankin, and Punk Rude Boy, Sharp Cheddar Dubay. We'll see you tomorrow on The Fabulous 413. We will.